You must lament before you can be revived. You must lament before you can be revived. That's what the Reverend Dr. William Barber declared as he spoke to a full house at Plymouth Congregational Church on Monday night. Dr. Barber is the founder of the Moral Monday movement that has united Muslims and Jews and Christians and Unitarian Universalists and so many more down in North Carolina. And he was in town this past week as part of the National Revival Tour to redefine morality in American politics. He was here to help us refocus our attention on the true moral issues of the day. Issues about labor, anti-poverty policies that build up our economy, issues around equality in education, healthcare for all, fairness in the criminal justice system, and voting rights and equal protection for everyone under the law. The service was meant to fire us up, to unite us in our work for justice. But first, Dr. Barber said, we must lament. He said one of the biggest problems in our society today is that we do not lament. And in fact, some of us have lost the ability to lament altogether. And when that happens, we must lament for one another. Before we can get to revival, before we can have genuine, authentic hope, Dr. Barber said, we have to lament. We have to hear the real stories of people in our community. We have to hear how they have been impacted by the policies we are seeking to change. We have to listen deeply to their experiences, their stories of sorrow and pain. We have to let ourselves be moved to lament. It is only then, only after deep listening, after true feeling, after lament, that we might get to revival and renewal and hope. So we sat there in this packed house of a congregation. We sat together and we listened to the stories of people in our community. We listened to the fast food workers who struggle to live on the wages they are paid, workers who shared with us that when they have gone to their managers to ask for a raise, the manager has looked them in the face and said, you're not worth more than $9 an hour. We listened to the stories of preachers and activists with the felony records from incidents that happened 20, 30 years in the past, but who still cannot find housing or employment. We listened to immigrants tell their story of going to access healthcare here in this country and finding out that the folks that are providing the healthcare don't know about, don't acknowledge, don't respect their cultural traditions. And we listened to a multiracial teenager named Phoenix share his story. Now Phoenix got up there 16 years old and I thought he was so brave being in front of this huge congregation full of people sharing his story. He talked about how the educational system hadn't really worked for him. How he was so far behind in high school because of some things that had come up in his family and in his life. And that even now, if he aced every single class, he wasn't going to graduate high school until he was 20 years old. He shared how desolate that felt and how he had found hope because he had found an internship. An internship with a nonprofit organization in the community and the folks there had really seen him. They could see his potential and his reality, his bright light within, and they nurtured it with him. They saw him. And he talked about this feeling of hope and possibility and a future that he had, how he was gonna go for his GED, how he could see a career in front of him. He was sailing 
sharing this success story, his success story. And after he sat down, Dr. Barber leaned forward in his chair and he pulled the microphone up close to his lips and he gave us a warning. First, he said thank you to Phoenix and he celebrated with him. But then he turned to the rest of us and he said, essentially, you heard that story. Did you hear the stories behind that story? You know, every time we lift up one person as a success, he said, as evidence that it can work, it can be better, we forget the story of the hundreds and thousands of young people like Phoenix for whom the educational system is broken. All of those who did not make it out, who weren't lucky enough or had the connections enough to find that internship that provided the light and the future for them. When we hear the success story, as Dr. Barber told us, we have to do our duty, our diligence, and listen and find and search out the stories behind that story if we're gonna know the whole story, the truth. I know that for many of us, privilege and denial can allow us to have the opportunity to distance ourselves from the stories and the pain in our community. And so often those with privilege push aside the reality that others are living in to avoid the pain that comes with knowing the truth. And I know that for some of us, we cannot avoid the reality of the pain and the truth. It is our lives. We can't put distance between ourselves and those stories and experiences because they are ours. And I know that as Victoria Safford said in her reading, as we will keep hearing, we must tell our stories, our stories from right where we are. We must listen to each other's stories from right where they are if we are going to cultivate real hope, real change, real revival in our community. We have to listen and we have to watch as hard as it is. We have to listen to the stories, we have to watch the videos of a black man being harassed while walking down the street of Edina. We can't let ourselves go for the prudent gates of optimism or the stalwart, boring gates of common sense nor the strident gates of self-righteousness or the flimsy garden gate of everything's gonna be all right. If we are truly going to be revived, if we're truly going to put real moral values at the heart of our country and of our lives, then we have to be able to listen, to tell the stories, to hear the stories, to lament first. In an interview with Krista Tippett, the millennial author and activist Courtney Martin told her story of growing up with baby boomer, somewhat unconventional parents. And as she told her story, she said that the script that she received from her parents went something like this. We set out to change the world, they would say over and over. We set out to change the world and somehow we ended up rich. I hear this for myself too. <laughs> we set out to change the world, they would tell her, and somehow we ended up rich. Now, we weren't rich, rich, Courtney Martin goes on to say, but we were solidly middle class as a family. Her parents started out on a mission as young adults, they told her. They wanted to change the world, but when it didn't change fast enough or on their timeline, they got discouraged. They figured out that, well, whatever I can do won't really make a difference, won't really matter. And they settled into a routine of what was expected, of what was normal. 
They settled into a way of being that created and recreated the status quo that they had been raging against not that long ago. This is what white privilege looks like, Courtney Martin said. This ability to walk away from the pain and the struggles of your neighbors. And I might add, I think this is also what economic privilege looks like, or gender privilege, or all kinds of privileges. But I think also, this ability to walk away from the problems, this ability to not lament, is something that can happen too when we find out or when we come into the experience realizing we have what's called a transactional relationship with hope, with change, with rebellion. A transactional relationship, it probably sounds kind of familiar, it's essentially an if-then relationship with something or someone or something. It's if I do this, then that will happen. If I do this, then that will happen. That's a transactional relationship. And Martin says that she realized that early on in her life, she had a transactional relationship with rebellion. She said she didn't realize it till it was happening, but she would campaign for a candidate and then expect that candidate to win. She would protest the war and expect that the war would end. And then when it didn't, when this transactional relationship didn't work, if then she found herself in despair, in utter despair. And she knew that if this was the kind of relationship she was going to have with hope and possibility and rebellion, it was not gonna sustain her for the long haul. Now, I know this for myself lately, and I'm guessing some of you have had similar experiences where you've realized you were in this if-then relationship with something or someone or with hope itself. Lately for myself, as we've been living into the weeks after our house fire and our escape from harm, I've found myself trying to put markers in the sand, trying to kind of set milestones where I can say to myself, well, when we get here, when we do this, then it will be better. Then it will be all back to normal, right? Maybe then it won't hurt so much. Maybe then the lament phase is done and over. I know I've said out loud, you know, when we get through the salvage part of this, when we don't have to look anymore at the stuff that we've lost, when we don't have to see that moment when the lightning hit frozen in time, when that's behind us, I'll feel better. It'll be different. And I'll say it has helped a bit to pass some of those markers in the sand that I've put there, to get through some of those milestones and know we don't have to do that again. But I have been saddened each time. It doesn't give back the life as it was before the incident. It doesn't make it not have happened. So I've found that as I've put these markers in the sand over the past few weeks, I'm largely finding myself disappointed when I pass them. So I've found myself on the lookout for something that might work a little bit better. And luckily, I have found it by being with you. I'm grateful for the privilege of being in the ministry for some time now, and the privilege of being with you and with others when difficult moments happen in your life. It is a privilege to be there, to listen, to bear witness to the stories, to the truth, to the forever changed nature of your lives. And I've learned by watching you and by being in community together that I can trust that six months, a year, five years, 20 years out, it will be different. It might not be exactly as you wanted it or I want it to be, 
but it will be different. And I've found by watching you that I can, in fact, put my faith in the long haul, the long arc of change and hope and possibility. You all have taught me that the stories continue to be written, even when it seems like they're over. We live in this culture that expects mastery, that expects efficiency and effectiveness and for us to be on a straight path from here to there. And I think this attitude, this way of being in the world does us a huge disservice, both personally and in our public lives and in our social and political lives. When we expect that an experience or a feeling, whether it's sadness or lament or despair or hope or possibility or joy or beauty or laughter, when we expect that those are one-time things that will happen only that once, we'll fight for justice just this once and it'll all work out, we find ourselves falling into despair. This world we live in, this way of life is so much more than that. It's the both and. It's the joy and sadness intertwined. It's the experiences that come back again and again in a different spiral, in a different way each time. And yet, so often, we want to grab for certainty, to know that it will be this way for sure. This is the truth of how it is, when really, we don't know. The author and activist Rebecca Solnit writes, Despair demands less of us. It's more predictable, and in a sad kind of way, it is safer, she says. Despair demands less of us. It's more predictable, and in a sad sort of way, it is safer. Now, she's not talking about the despair of depression, which is in no way safe or easy. She's talking about the kind of despair that you have probably heard, I know I have, when we talk about what's going on in our political world today, when we talk about the state of our world, economy, environment, all of those things. Despair is safer, she says. She goes on to write that to say that the emperor has no clothes, to tell the truth, things are bad, this is terrible, to say that the emperor has no clothes is a nice anti-authoritarian gesture. But to say that everything without exception is going straight to hell is not an alternative vision, but only an inverted version of the mainstream's everything's fine. It is not an alternative vision when we say everything is going to hell in a handbasket. What we need is an alternative vision, imagination, creativity, possibility. We have to lament, Dr. Barber reminds us. We have to lament and hear the real stories of people in our community, of our stories, and then we must bring our imagination, our sense of possibility, our stalwart stance at the gates of hope, our letting go of a transactional relationship with hope, with rebellion, with change, if we are going to create this future that I know we dream about. I know for me, I draw a lot of hope by looking backward. For me, I need to remember that what is normal today wasn't always so. I need to remember that 100 years ago, it was hard to even imagine that a woman would vote, let alone run for president. I have to remember that it really wasn't long ago at all that our city was celebrating Columbus Day, not Indigenous Peoples Day. I have to remember that not long ago at all, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer folks were considered criminals, 
not a part of the everyday fabric of our community. I have to remember how wild it is that we are in a time when women and people of color hold our highest offices. Things have changed. What we see as normal now was not always so. And of course, we have to remember, as Dr. Barber cautioned us, not to hold up these successes and forget about everything else and say, we are done, see, it worked. Our journey is not over, there is more work to be done. But it helps me to look back and to know things do change, things can change in ways I never could have imagined. Sometimes, after all, the poet said, Sometimes things don't go after all from bad to worse. Sometimes we aim high and all goes well. A people will sometimes step back from war, elect an honest person, decide they care enough that they can't leave a stranger poor. Some of us become what we are born for. If we are to live a spiritual life, to really live leaning into our values, translating them into our actions, we have to develop a relationship with hope that can sustain us beyond this moment. A relationship with hope that goes beyond the transactional if, then, if I do this and I get what I want, then I will continue to fight. Our relationship with hope has got to be deeper than that. And so my wish for us is that we find our way, each of us, to let hope take root in us, to grow deep in us, that we might be sustained, that we might, in fact, do what we can do with what we have right here, right now. May hope ground itself in you. May it be so. Amen.